You might remember this momentous moment in 2014. Facebook introduced the capability of choosing between one of 58 different gender identities. Do you remember that? Anybody? No? I remember hearing you going, whoa, that is crazy. I can't even think of more than three. Well, really two, but I was being generous. Um, that, made, that made headlines. Well, from two to 58. It's quite a jump. Then there's a Facebook page right now called Manchester Vegan Action. I don't know how I found that. <laughs> but on their page, they posted... 112 different gender identities. You can look it up. 112. So we go from 2 to 58. From 58 to 112. Am I missing something? You might be thinking. <laughs> what's, going, what's going on here? Is, is there really 112? Or are there two genders and 110 different ways to feel about it? Or is there more than meets the eye? What we really want, what we really need, is to seek the wisdom of gender. And what does scripture teach us? And what does Christianity believe? So before we get into this, I need to help like level the playing field because we, there, you know, Christians have a bias, many have a bias in this area. And we, we tend to be really bad at understanding the lost. Um, it, it hurts my heart, and I'm sorry if this is you, but it does. It hurts my heart when I hear Christians unable to say LGBTQ. They get it all jumbled up and say whatever. That's not whatever to a lot of people in this world. Like, that's an identity to them. And love should at least take the effort to say, I see where you're coming from. We don't accept it, right? I understand that. Like, we're like, ooh, and it makes us gross or feel kind of like, I, I, I don't know. Uh, just, it just, it just, I think especially um, for those of us who've lived in a world that hasn't seen this longer, it, it just makes us really hard to compute and figure out what to do with this and where we are in it. So I understand that, but we need to love our neighbor and it starts with understanding who they are. So I want to, I want to take a minute before we get into this message, um, giving you some basic terminology, because I think if you're honest, most of us don't have a clue what's going on with these gender terms. Is that Okay. Okay, well, I hope it is, because I'm doing it. Um, first one is biological sex. This one's actually pretty ordinary. You guys have no problem with this. Biological sex is the sex assigned at your birth based upon your biology. Generally, all you got to do is look at the baby and say, that's a boy, or that's a girl. That's biological sex, okay? Sexual orientation is what gender are you attracted to? to. That's sexual orientation, right? That may have nothing to do with your birth sex, but sexual orientation is, well, I am this, but I am attracted to this type or that type, okay? That's your orientation. Um, That does not necessarily mean you're acting out on it. It just means that this is my, uh, this is is how I feel, okay? That's what sexual orientation means. Now, gender identity is how I feel about my gender, okay? So I might have been assigned a male by birth, but I feel feminine, or I feel male. That's your gender identity, how you see yourself. Gender expression is how I present myself to the world, okay? So gender identity, how I feel about myself, expression, I may or may not, let's say, Pastor Brandon, feels more feminine than masculine? Don't go running wild with that. And, but, so that might be my identity, but I don't express that. I'm wearing men's clothing and I wear a beard, right? I'm not gender expressing femininity, right? I'm, I'm expressing masculinity. Does that make sense? Um, and then there's two terms. You've probably heard these and they might have confused you. There's cisgender and transgender, Okay. Cisgender is when my gender identity, how I feel about myself, aligns with my biological sex. Pastor Brandon was born biologically a male. He, my gender identifies with a male, so that means I'm cisgender. They are in alignment, okay? 
Now, if my identity, how I feel about myself, is mal-aligned or misaligned with my um, biological birth, that makes me transgender. That would mean I was born a man, but I feel more feminine than that. That's a transgender, okay? I'm switching over. Following? Okay, cisgender, probably the majority, and actually not everybody in church, believe me, not every Christian but the majority perhaps feel cisgender, but there are a number of Christians who feel transgender. They may not be expressing that, but there is a misalignment with how they feel and how they're born, okay? Okay, so that's cisgender, that's transgender. I want to introduce to you guys one new term tonight. I'm making it up. It's whizgender. For wisdom. The gender of wisdom. So we're going to go through this text, and we're going to teach it seriously, but then we're going to come back to this, because I think this text has some um, implications to the subject. So if you're sitting here going, where in the world is this going? Um, I just told you, okay? We're going to come back to it. So let's go. Proverbs chapter 30. Now everyone's on edge. We wanted a nice Bible study. <laughs> let's, let's save our opinions for the end of the service. All right. <laughs> Proverbs 30, verse 1. Um, what you'll see right away is that it says, The words of Agur, son of Jaka, the oracle. That's how the English standard reads. And then chapter 31, verse 1, The words of King Lemuel, an oracle that his mother taught him. So chapter 30 and chapter 31, the first verse tells us right away that we are breaking from the Solomonic tradition of the Proverbs. Okay, through Proverbs, we've understood that Solomon, the Proverbs have come from him. He has been our instructor. Lady Wisdom is wisdom personified as a woman who's tutoring us through the instruction. Now, though, we're breaking from that at the very end of the book. And Agur and Lemuel are both sharing us with us their Proverbs. Okay, who are these jokers? If they're just going to break in the scene, why don't I at least, why haven't I heard of these names before? Agur means gatherer, maybe perhaps because he has gathered wisdom and now he's sharing it, maybe. Lemuel means God with him. So both of these people very apparently know God and they're sharing wisdom. But there might be more to who they are than what we see on the surface. Like I read to you guys in verse 1 of both chapters, both of them refer to an oracle. That's a saying. This is their saying, is what it's telling us. But that word oracle in Hebrew is Massah. And Massah, yes, is translated saying or oracle, but sometimes Massah refers to a place, a, a, a desert tribe in Arabia that were descendants of Ishmael. So it actually could, and some translations actually produce it this way, it could read either, um, Agur, this is the oracle of Agur, or it could read Agur of Massah, Agur of the place called Massah. Now, I have no idea which one to prefer, um, but I will share this with you. If it is referring to his location, by the way, that would mean Agur and Lemuel both come from Massah. If both of them have come from Massah, then what this tells us is that the wisdom of Solomon that God has given to his people has spread to other Gentile, non-Jewish nations. That's what it means. And the reason these two would be appearing at the very end of the book is to show us what happens when God's people embody the wisdom that he gives us. When we embody his wisdom, we share the love of Christ with others. Because Agur and Lemuel saw Israel's wisdom and came to Israel's God. That's a really cool implication, if that is indeed how it is to be read. So what we're seeing at the end of Proverbs is, is this final appeal. You've, re- you've eaten at Lady Wisdom's banquet for 29 chapters. Now for the last two chapters... Let's put this in action. Let's walk this out. So, uh, let's look at Agur's Proverbs. Um, First, we see his pursuit. Agur shares with us his life pursuit, sort of like a testimony. 
So he says this, starting at second part of verse 1. The man declares, I am weary, O God. I am weary, O God, and worn out. Now the Hebrew is vague, so some translations might read that a little bit differently, but I'm going with the English standard right now. So I am weary, O God, and worn out. Verse 2. Surely I am too stupid to be a man. I have not the understanding of a man. I have not learned wisdom, nor have I knowledge of the Holy One. So he begins with the self-deprecating declaration of himself. Why? Because in Agur's pursuit of wisdom, he discovered something very, very important. That we will never find wisdom through human reasoning. This is beyond the human reasoning. This is beyond empiricism. Beyond what is seen, felt, and heard, and rationed. Rationalized. Wisdom is something that is beyond that. So Agur says, look, I am weary with search. I, I, I don't have the understanding. I am stupid. Good place to be. That's a great place to be because now he can find wisdom. As Jesus taught us. Blessed. Well, who, whose is the kingdom of heaven? The pure, poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Agur is poor in spirit at this point. So this leads him second. Wisdom does not come from human reason. It comes from... Well, God, the creator, knows everything, so that's a start. Verse 4. Who has ascended to heaven and come down? Not a man. Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Not a man. Who has wrapped up the waters in a garment? Not a man. Who has established all the ends of the earth? Not a man. Obviously God, right? The rhetorical questions are, God is the one who does all this. So what is his name, and what is his son's name? Surely you know. So there's an appeal to who, who will become a son of this God. And of course, we do know his actual son's name is Jesus Christ. And so he came down to show us wisdom. The New Testament tells us that Christ was wisdom. Um, but right now, Agur grasps the fact that it doesn't come from me. It comes from God because he made everything. So he has everything at his fingertips. That's why he can give wisdom. It's from him. And then the third and final stage of his pursuit. It's not from me. It's found in God. I access it through God's word. That's where he's giving his wisdom is in his word. This is verse 5 and 6. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. So that wraps right back around to don't bring human reason to this. Receive wisdom from the God who made everything as he gives it to us through his word. Wisdom's received, it is not achieved. That's what Agur shows us. My life story is one of receiving wisdom from God. So now we see his prayer in verse 7 through 9. Two things I ask of you. Deny them not to me before I die. One. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Great prayer. Second, give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me. Lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. What a fantastic prayer. I want to live in truth. And the second, please just give me daily bread. I don't want poverty. I don't want riches. How many Americans pray against poverty and for riches? Not this man's prayer. Wisdom is praying for neither extreme. I want the balanced middle. And he gives us the reasons. Without daily bread. If I have too much bread, I will get proud. If I have too little bread, I will sin. I need just what Jesus taught us to pray. Give us this day our daily bread. I need the allotment necessary for me today. And that prayer that Jesus teaches us is wisdom. Because brothers and sisters, we don't want to be without and suffering and lacking, but we don't want too much. How much of us go through life praying or practicing a lifestyle of trying to accumulate beyond the point of necessity? And even literally with food. What does it mean to live every day with that which is necessary? Not less, not more. This is what Agur is praying for. 
Um, wisdom always seeks that balance between two extremes. You can generally, generally, in life assume that if there's an extreme, it is not the path of wisdom. And now he comes to his seven proverbs. So these um, seven proverbs are clustered, and the first three are introduced by verse 10. Do not slander a servant to his master, lest he curse you and you be held guilty. That introduces the first three. The first three are about greed. Don't be greedy. The last four are introduced by verse 17. The eye that mocks a father and scorns to obey a mother will be plucked out by the ravens of the valley and eaten by the vultures. Nice. That introduces the last four Proverbs, and those are around the theme of living within one's limits. Kind of like his prayer. Let me live within my limits, not poor, not rich. Okay, so let's look at these briefly. So, starting in verse 11, we see his first proverb. Remember, the first three are about, don't be greedy. The greedy generation, verse 11, there are those who crush their, oh, sorry, there are those who curse their fathers and do not bless their mothers. There are those who are clean in their own eyes, but are not washed of their filth. There are those, how lofty are their eyes, how high their eyelids lift. And there are those whose teeth are swords, whose fangs are knives to devour the poor from off the earth, the needy from among mankind. That's the greedy generation. Second, the disordered desires of greed. Greed is a disordered desire. Is it okay to want something? Absolutely. Is it okay to want something in a disordered way? Too much or used in the wrong method or manner? Yes, that's wrong. The disordered desire of greed. Verse 15. The leech has two daughters. Give and give. <laughs> First one was enough. Give me more. Um, that's the leech, and that's what greed is. It's a leech in our heart, sucking and wanting more, more, more. Give, give, give. Proverb 3. It's in the middle of verse 15. They didn't break that, up, that one up very well, did they? Number three, uh, the four discontents. The four discontents. Three things are never satisfied. Four never say enough. That's just a poetic way of saying four. Four never say enough. Sheol, the place of the dead. Still hungry, isn't it? The barren womb. The land never satisfied with water. And the fire that never says Enough. I mean, have you ever seen any of those just stop and say, I've had enough? They will keep going if you keep giving it fuel. Those are the three. Now we move to the last four. These teach us to live within our limits. Verse 18 is number four. These are four lives that are enjoying liberation within their limitation. So here are four examples of limit, living within your limits, and we see that they're actually freer for doing so. So verse 18, three things are too wonderful for me, four I do not understand. The way of an eagle in the sky, the way of a serpent on a rock, the way of a ship on the high seas, and the way of a man with a virgin. These are wonderful, he says, because how graceful are these four things when they're in the right place? But you take the ship off the high seas and put it on the high mountains. Mm. You take the snake and put it, um, you put it in clouds, nah. right? These are, these are graceful because they live in their limitations. The way of a man with a virgin, that is then countered in verse 20, where we have the antithesis of this proverb. It says here, this is the way of an adulteress. She eats and wipes her mouth and says, I have done no wrong. <laughs> there she basically reduces adultery to eating food. She has transgressed the limitations put upon her. Fifth proverb, verse 21. This is the disruption of the malcontents. The disruption of the malcontents, verse 21. Under three things, the earth trembles. Under four, it cannot bear up. A slave, when he becomes king, a fool when he is filled with food, an unloved woman when she gets a husband, 
and a maidservant when she displaces her mistress. What all four of those have in common is the idea of usurpation, of undermining an authority that is above you. The first two are men, the last two are women. And now number six, verse 24, the power of four beasts living within their limits. Verse 24, four things on earth are small, but they are exceedingly wise. The ants are a people not strong, yet they provide their food in the summer. The rock badgers are a people not mighty, yet they make their homes in the cliffs. The locusts have no king, yet all of them march in rank. And the lizard, or some people translate the spider. We don't really know what this animal is, the Hebrew word for it at least. So the lizard, the spider, you can take in your hands, yet it is in king's palaces. <laughs> yep, those are limited small beings, but you notice how majestic they are, despite that. And then the seventh, the wisdom of ruling your own realm. The wisdom of ruling your own realm. Verse 29. Three things are stately in their stride. Four are stately in their stride. Excuse me, stately in their tread. Four are stately in their stride. The lion, which is mightiest among beasts, and does not turn back before any. The strutting rooster. The he-goat. And a king whose army is with him. Those are four very confident, stately uh, people, or things, critters. Notice that all of them are considered the top dog of their class. So this is ruling your own realm, okay? None of them, the lion's not trying to rule the, the ocean. He wouldn't be very stately there. He's ruling in his realm, and he's stately because of that, okay? And then he closes with this uh, warning, talking about greed and limitation. He closes with this warning about exalting yourself. Verse 32. If you have been foolish, exalting yourself, so you've broken these seven proverbs, you're exalting yourself, or if you have been devising evil, put your hand on your mouth. In other words, admit you made a mistake and stop. For pressing milk produces curds, pressing the nose produces blood, and pressing anger produces strife. If you recognize you're in the wrong, stop, because if you keep pressing, you're going to bring consequences. And that's Agur's wisdom. Now we come to King Lemuel. The words of King Lemuel. Again, he could be a Gentile king who's come to the God of Israel through the wisdom he's seen through Solomon. Or uh, King Lemuel, some people think that he's, it's actually another name for Solomon. Both are total toss-ups because we don't see Solomon named that any other place. And why not just call him Solomon if he's called Solomon in the rest of the book? But there you have it. Uh, the Okay. The words of King Lemuel, an oracle that his mother taught him. What are you doing, my son? What are you doing, son of my womb? What are you doing, son of my vows? She's concerned. So she writes this poem to him to show him how to be a good king. Mother's wisdom to her kingly son. Here's her advice. Practice restraint. Practice restraint with women, verse 3. Do not give your strength to women, your ways to those who destroy kings. Yep, you're a king. You can have whatever you want. Practice restraint, my son, or you will ruin yourself. Solomon could tell you about that too. Verse 5, or 4. Practice restraint against alcohol. It is not for kings, O Lemuel. It is not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to take strong drink lest they drink and forget what has been decreed and pervert the rights of all the afflicted. So, look, Lemuel, practice restraint, because if you let alcohol take over you, you're going to be a terrible king. You can't let it take over you. You have to have restraint. Be kingly in the way you use it, right? So this is who, this is who you should just give an abundance of alcohol to instead. Not you, but to these people. Verse 6. Give strong drink to the one who is perishing, and wine to those in bitter distress. Let them drink and forget their poverty and remember their misery no more. Kind of troubling in a way. It sounds like the Bible's encouraging you to let those in misery get drunk. But I think her point here is you should definitely not be getting drunk. This is the kind of position in life that gets drunk. Do you want to be in this position? 
that I think it's more of a rhetorical device there. And now in verse 8. So restraint from women, restraint from drunkenness and alcohol, and now practice justice for all. Verse 8. Open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and needy. And thus closes the mother's poem to her son, King Lemuel. We then come in verse 10 to the last section of Proverbs, the most famous of this entire section, and probably the most famous of Proverbs, the virtuous woman. It's another poem about a woman, an ideal woman. Um, Did Lemuel write it? We don't know. It just kind of goes on to the next poem. Um, Whoever wrote it, whether it's Solomon or Lemuel or Anonymous, the purpose of its positioning is crystal clear. This poem about the virtuous woman is at the end because she is Lady Wisdom embodied in real life. That's the idea. Lady Wisdom has come and told us things throughout the book of Proverbs, but now we see her in a real flesh and blood context. That also suggests that this is not necessarily limited to a message toward wives or women but that the author, by closing with this, perhaps has in mind all humanity needing to live out wisdom in a similar manner. And as you read it, yes, some of the context is female-specific, but as a whole, it's actually very vague. A lot of this could be applied very much to a man. But all that to say, this is the book's intentional closing. I want to, before we get into it, point out this verse, verse 30. If you'll jump to 3130. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. See that? Fears the Lord. Right at the end of the book, we sum up with bookends how the book started. Where is wisdom found? The book opened. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and wisdom. And now it closes Who is this virtuous woman? How did she attain all of this? Was she raised in wealth? Does she just have a better head than others? Was she beautiful? Did she marry rich or something? Nope. None of that. No charm, no beauty. She fears the Lord. That's what makes her who she is. So you see how it's using this poem to bring the entire book to a nice, tidy close. Embody wisdom in your life. Let's look at the poem. The virtuous woman. Verse 10, Um, the New King James says, virtuous wife. Um, The ESV reads, an excellent wife. I think it's typically known as the virtuous woman. I I grew up knowing it as the P-31 woman, P-31. I loved World War II planes. I loved all planes. Um, But World War II, there was the P-51 Mustang, one of the most beautiful World War II planes. So when I heard a pastor once say, the P-31 woman, it clicked to me. It's like, ooh, power and beauty. The P-31. It's kind of like a special plane or something. I don't know. It's a special person for sure. So the P-31, is she excellent? Is she virtuous? Is she strong? This word can actually be translated several ways. Um, strong, uh, mighty, army. The, the armed woman is actually a way the Hebrew reads. Um, a wealthy woman, meaning she's uh, prosperous, um, a, bi- a woman with ability. So you see, the, the idea of this word here is that she's amassed something. There's some sort of might, some sort of, there's something working well for her that she's amassed. And so uh, you step back and say, the ESV says, well, that's excellence. And the New King James says, that's virtue. Uh, and in many ways, when you read her, yes, that's exactly what these things are. These are virtues. This is excellence. She's amassed. And all of this is the same thing. It's strong. It's made her like a warrior. Like, so this Hebrew, this complex, broad Hebrew word is saying so much about this woman. So, an excellent wife who can find. We first see that she's very rare. Okay, this is her value. She's very rare and she's trustworthy. An excellent wife who can find. She is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her. And she, or he, will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. That's value. Rarity and trustworthy. Now we see her works. 
Um, it's going to go from domestic to social. Her works from the house to outside the house. Verse 13. She seeks wool and flax and works with willing hands. Wool and flax, of course, is how you make clothing. Flax would have been a plant-based clothing, wool, uh, animal-based clothing. Verse 14. She is like the ships of the merchant. She brings her food from afar. So the way ships come into the harbor with goods from another land, in our country is from China, but from another land, um, she's like that. She's bringing goods from exotic things we've never seen or that are hard to get. Verse 15, she rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and portions for her maidens. She considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hands, she plants a vineyard. She dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She perceives, so she's not lazy. She's working. You can see that in many ways. She's working. Uh, 18. She perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night. Now, an American sees that and thinks, oh, the lamp does not go out at night. That means she's burning both ends of the candle. She's staying up late all night, working her fingers to the bones. That's the way we read that. That's not what it would have meant in an ancient time. First, wisdom tells us to sleep. Americans don't sleep enough. We're all sleep deprived most of the time. Unless you get seven to eight hours a night, you're sleep deprived. Um, What this means is that back in the day, a darkness was real at night. Like, we don't know darkness like the people of ancient times knew darkness. And the night was terrifying and dangerous. To be able to burn your candle through the night meant that you had prepared enough candles to burn them through the night. That's what it means. She's a prepared woman. She has stocked the things necessary to keep the household safe. So she, the, her lamp does not go out at night. She puts, this is 19, she puts her hands to the distaff and her hands hold the spindle. So that's spinning clothes. She's making clothes. She opens her hand to the poor and reaches out her hands to the needy. So why does she have so much? She's giving her family her daily bread and then she's giving the rest to those who have need. 21, she is not afraid of snow for her household, for all her household are clothed in scarlet. She makes bed coverings for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Her husband is known in the gates. The gates was the traffic area of a city. It was like down, we say downtown today, they would have said the gates then. So he's known in the most important part of the city when he sits among the elders of the land. 24, She makes linen garments and sells them. She delivers sashes to the merchant. Strength and dignity are her clothing. And she laughs at the time to come. Not because she's arrogant, but because she's prepared. She opens her mouth with wisdom and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Now we shift in verse 28. We've seen her value, we've seen her work, and now we see her praise. Verse 28. Her children raise up and call her blessed. Her husband also, and he praises her. Many women have done excellency, excellently, but you surpass them all. And now our author concludes with these two verses. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain. But a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Give her of the fruit of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates. And thus closes the book of Proverbs. Powerful woman. This poem is an acrostic. Do you remember from our study in the Psalms what an acrostic is? It's a poem in which each line starts with the successive letters of the alphabet. So what an acrostic says basically is, we're going to tell you about this subject, everything you need to know from A to Z. This is the virtuous woman, the strong, the mighty woman from A to Z. It's a detailed look. And the poem structure goes through that, through the alphabet. Um, But it's also, it's not just an acrostic. This poem mimics the style of poems that were written to praise and glorify heroic warriors. Is that not interesting? Here, Proverbs composes a form of poetry known then, 
which is written for the heroic warrior, to a woman, which is today we have many women who expect that. But back then, women didn't get attention in this way. They were The Hebrew worldview was split like this. Humanity is split between Jews on top and Gentiles on the bottom. These were God's favorites and they're pagan heathens. And then you split the Jewish world in half again, and you say men are on the top and women are down here. In fact, there were places in the temple that women were not allowed to go past. They could go further than Gentiles, but they could not go as far as the men. You remember when Jesus was telling stories and teaching and Mary was sitting at his feet and Martha's in the kitchen working and she's really upset. Do you remember that? That was because, um, yes, Martha was busy and Mary wasn't working and she could have been upset about that. No doubt that would have been there. (laughs) That's human nature. But Jesus rebukes Martha because um, what Martha's doing is she's saying to Jesus, don't you know women are not allowed to sit at the feet of a rabbi? That's a man's rule. Her role is in the kitchen with me. And Martha feels like she has to be the rule enforcer. She's breaking code of conduct. And Jesus says, like the tradition of Proverbs, shame on you for thinking that way about women. She's chosen the better portion. She belongs at my feet. Jesus gave women a new level of belonging, which was very radical in that day, even to a Jewish woman. And so to have a poem here, which is written in the style of praising a warrior, a heroic warrior, is astonishing to begin with. It also gives to me two implications to say that this is a powerful woman, not just powerful, but heroic, wartime, Achilles kind of powerful, heroic woman. It brings two implications. First, It implies that the home is a battleground. The home is a battleground and the wife is its heroic, valiant warrior. Which shows us the primacy and importance of the home. That this is where the battle is fought. Because today, we, the church, are losing the home. And we don't have valiant warriors defending the home. Wisdom is not practiced in the marketplace. It's not practiced on social media. And it's not practiced where everybody can watch us. Wisdom is practiced first and foremost in the nitty gritty daily grind at home. You will never be wise until you can be wise in the home. And wisdom in the home will protect the home from the world, the flesh, and the devil, and all of its deceits and the God of this age. We need valiant, mighty woman warriors like P31 in the home. Very, very important role. In fact, um, you know that we, we end every week. We gather every week and then we end every week with a benediction. Because what we're doing in a benediction, it's, it's fancy word for the blessing. We send us out with a blessing because you are going to the battlefield. And we need to commission ourselves out as warriors for truth, defenders of the household, of the home front. Wisdom is not just a nice attribute. It is the grounds for winning the battle in the house. And the P31 is the warrior. Second implication of the strong woman, the the heroic poem, uh, the second implication is that when a woman embodies wisdom, She's actually attaining what feminism desires. Did you hear that? The P31 woman has attained what the feminist movement is fighting for. The feminist movement is trying to make women equal with men, right? As a principle, I think Christians are good with that because Jesus sure seemed to be. But there's a lot of other details in there, right? And what ends up happening is feminism is taking the masculine qualities of a woman and over-elevating those at the expense of the feminine qualities of the woman. So that in trying to be equal, they're actually robbing their power, the very power Proverbs 31 is elevating. That's the problem with feminism, is it's taking a Christian concept 
but it's stripping Christ from the concepts so that what you get left is the so-called wisdom of man and it's empty and it's hollow and it can be a little bit obnoxious. You with me? That's the problem with it. So the Proverbs 31 woman has actually attained an ancient source is telling us that this is what feminism is looking for. It's too bad that it's just moved way too far into their so-called progress to see what lies in the past. So, male, female, equal, not equal. We need to go back to creation. Genesis 1 verse 27. You remember 126? God makes everything for six days, and at the end of the sixth day, he says, all right, the table is set, the stage is ready, the house is made, let's make man in our image, after our likeness, and let's give him dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and the beasts of the field and the things that creep along the ground, right? But what does Genesis 1 verse 27 say? It then breaks out into a poem and says this, so God created man, that should be read as humanity, God created man in his own image, In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him. What's that saying? God made humanity in his image. What what does that look like? It came out as male and female. This is the image of God. In other words, God didn't make man his image. He didn't make woman his image. He made man and woman his image. So the image of God cannot be completely seen with only one gender. He's sought to be expressed in both. Reducing either gender's qualities apart from the other is actually a reduction of the image of God. Did you hear that? Reducing uh, reducing manhood to just these components of manhood and divorcing from it all other feminine qualities so that it's just raw, pure masculinity, that is actually reducing the image of God. Or to make the the, the woman, to reduce all of the other strengths or so-called man qualities of a woman and just making her this delicate, fragile, little, fragrant flower is reducing the image of God. And this is one of the problems that we have today is reductionism. We've turned the man into a set number of qualities and the woman into a set number of qualities, and we do not have much overlap anymore. We, as Christians, believe in two biological sexes at birth, right? Male, female. So therefore, logically, we believe in two genders. But society's confused Because they say there can't be only two genders. They see this macho, muscle-flexing, meat-eating, big, overweight person over here. Masculinity? I don't identify with that. But I was born male. Or, got to present your best face every day. Got to always be sympathetic, empathetic, and emotional and feeling everyone and and being motherly and always preferring to uh, stay home than to work and assert yourself. This view of the woman, this person over here says, I was born female, but I don't understand that. And so what we have as a result in a fallen world is we now have 112 options in between the extremes. But see, in a fallen world, what we don't understand is what does that mean? So if we're told it's this or that, then the world reacts with, well, then we'll create more categories. When the whole time God is saying, that's never what man and woman was. This, these these extremes, this is a rupture of the image of God. It is an idolization of masculinity and an idolization of femininity. And anyone who falls somewhere apart from the extremes feels like they don't belong. I'll just have to use my hands. I totally forgot to get a prop for you. You need to imagine two circles. Male over here, female over here. 
Now imagine that these circles overlap partially. Okay? You can't, they're not transparent, so you can't quite see it, but they're overlapping. All right. So on the far edges, it's only male and it's only female, right? In the center, you have an overlap between male and female. Now, in the overlap, does that mean that the female that's overlapping with male has somehow switched genders? No. This is still a biologically, sexually female person who's now overlapping with some male qualities. This is a a biologically sexual male overlapping with some feminine qualities. Okay? Still man and woman, but their qualities are overlapping. Okay, so hold this image. On the extreme edges, where it's just masculinity and just femininity, you have fallen gender. Gender that has fallen into sin. And this is how most of us grow up. Boys feel like they have to exert themselves as a certain image to be to have cred with the boys, and girls are pressured to go, grow up under a certain image to feel like they are the uh, desirable girls, right? You grow up with these fallen images. But the image of God is the overlap between the two. Sinful humanity is redeemed and restored to the image of God in Christ, and it is there we see both genders meeting. Now, that does not mean that I need to see Charles go and get his fingernails painted next week. See, that's, that's still thinking of the extremes. It means instead that what we see in the image of God is precisely what we see in Christ who became the image of God on earth. Christ was not this macho flexor muscles boy who's bullying everyone to get his way, but nor was he this over-emotional camp function without... Well, I don't know how to fairly describe a woman. It's harder because I'm a man, but... Nor do you see the super feminine side, this extreme side over here. You see in Christ a balance of the two. So, for example, he flipped tables in the temple. It's pretty manly. But he cuddled children on his lap. Especially in his time, That was womanly. Men did not do that, which is why the disciples held the children back from him. Oh no, our macho masculine Messiah does not have time for children. That's women's play. Not for Christ. Because he is the image of God. He is a man who exhibits masculine and feminine qualities. Jesus was not a dry-eyed stoic not going to cry, going to hold it together because I'm tough, I'm tough, I'm tough. But nor was he this delicate emotional mess, always carrying a hanky in his pocket. Rather, he mourned. He mourned. Um, oh, I totally got ahead of my notes. Whoops, that's not where that was supposed to be. But that works. Keep that in your head. He threw out demons, manly. He wept over Jerusalem. Oh. He condemned authorities. Remember, he railed against the religious leaders. Woe to you, you be condemned. Basically, he says, you sons of the devil, you should be damned. He doesn't say it in that wording, but that's the English word for what he says in the Greek. Go to hell. He's what he tells them. You belong there? Like that, wow, that's assertive. That's manly. But then he submits to the cross and tells Peter to put his sword away. That's not manly. So Jesus was both. And then in his teachings, he exhibits the balance. So think of the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes are largely a bunch of feminine qualities. Shockingly, think about it. At least they're not the qualities Americans consider masculine. Okay, We're saying it's their feminine qualities, but God's just saying this is image of God, redeemed human qualities. Uh, Think about poor in spirit. So this means that Jesus was neither the macho man nor a damsel in distress. He was poor in spirit. Justo Gonzalez comments on the Beatitudes and says, basically, they all sum up, are summarized like this. Be not macho. <laughs> I like that. He's a Spanish commentator, so he says it that way. Um, be not macho. Uh, Jesus mourns. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. He mourns. I already said this one early to you. He was not a dryad mystic, or stoic, I mean. Neither was he a delicate emotional mess. But he had his proper balance of mourning and being comforted. Uh, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Well, Jesus is meek. 
He's neither forceful nor is he docile. Meekness is the balance of the two. So in Christ, what we see is what Paul says in Galatians 3, verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ. See this? Extreme masculinity being pulled toward the center in Christ. Extreme femininity being pulled toward the center by Christ. That's why Paul says neither male nor female. It's not that Paul's saying, well, your biological sex doesn't matter anymore. Obviously, he recognizes that there's male and females. He even has different instructions for how males and females are to lead the church. He, he notices the difference. But his point is, is that the genders are no longer fallen and sinfully extreme. They are balanced in Christ. And we're finding the full image of God coming out in both males and females because in Christ, both qualities are exalted. That's the redemption of humanity. So here's the conclusion. The more a man is united to Christ, the more feminine he becomes. And the more a woman is united to Christ, the more masculine she becomes. Consider, when I was a boy, blowing things up, killing bugs, all these extreme macho boy things you can think of, that's what boys were after. But as I become more and more united in Christ, I'm learning empathy and compassion. And I'm learning to hold my strength down, not to hurt my enemy when I want to. And you can say that to the other side. For, for ladies, you can see, look at your testimony, your experience with Christ. You're becoming more masculine in Christ. Not to say that I'm going to become female. That's missing the point. I am a male finding a balance in Christ. So we do not need 112 genders. We only need two genders finding, not just two extreme genders, hear me. We need two genders finding balance and completion in Christ. That's how God is saving humanity from the fallen gender that is exploring itself in sin. He wants to redeem the image of God in all of us. Male and female, he created them in the image of God. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, for the life and knowledge which you have revealed through Jesus.